0: Hey, everyone, this is the Heat, one of the co-hosts of the Pulse podcast. Today's guest is Holly Maloney. Holly is a managing director at the venture capital firm General Catalyst, where she has a focus on healthcare. specifically. She's invested in digital health companies, including Cityblock, Olive, Sondermine, Transcarence, and most recently, Ribbon Health. Today, we're going to talk with Holly to learn more about what makes GC different, what's been driving her investment PC so far, and her outlook on digital health for 2022. Holly, I'm looking forward to this conversation. How's it going today?
1: I am doing really well. Thank you.
0: So let's start off with an icebreaker. As you know, we have the tradition of asking the same one to all our guests, and that is, what did you want to be when you grow up?
1: Very good question. My first memory of what I wanted to be, actually wanting to be a news anchor. So when I was young, they you know, they seem to be the source of truth. You obviously become much more informed now as you get older as to where the information is coming from and all of that good stuff. But it just, it seemed like the most interesting job in the world for somebody who's just getting exposure to the world.
0: Yeah. And so curious then, is doing a podcast and kind of being Involved in this media, you know, how do you feel about this?
1: <laughs> yeah, no, it is fun. I think I went through a phase where I was, you know, severely introverted. So actually, I really feared doing things like this, but I'm at a point in my life where I get good energy from it. So I appreciate you thinking of me and including me in your work.
0: Of course. And let's keep the energy going then. Um, so just Again, thank you for coming on to the podcast. And what I want to do today is get from you a sense of, you know, one-year career, you know, what's brought you to where you are today, a general catalyst, and then kind of really diving into how you think about the space. I, I think really talking to people from venture capital side, we get amazing perspectives on how things are changing, both from a venture side, as well as a company side, a funding side. And then because it is December, I would love to kind of wrap up with some predictions for the next year. So I guess to start off then on that very first topic, could you just tell me a little bit about your career before General Catalyst and then what ultimately made you want to come to GC?
1: Yeah, of course. So I, after undergrad, where I went to Bowdoin College in Maine, studied economics. And from there, I went into investment banking. But what was really important for me was actually focusing from a sector perspective. So I actually decided to go work for a boutique investment bank based in Boston that worked exclusively with technology companies in the emerging growth stage. So, was in uh, this role in investment banking for three years. So that was 2007, 2008, 2009, which, of course, was a very interesting time from an economic cycle perspective. But it was actually... You know, for better or for worse, incredibly active on the transaction side within the te- technology ecosystem. A lot of companies were trying to figure out what their strategic alternatives were. And so got to know, you know, the ins and outs of different business models. It was right when the cloud was starting to emerge as a concept and revenue models were starting to transition from, you know, perpetual license and maintenance to subscription. And so it was really interesting to see how both investors and strategic acquirers thought about this transition after, you know, two years is when I, you know, kind of picked my head up and started to get to know a lot of different investment firms I ended up joining the growth fund that was affiliated with Northbridge Venture Partners and so focused exclusively on growth stage investing. And I would say it was really the the traditional definition of growth equity, meaning we were looking to invest in businesses that had scale to them and and truly had breakout potential, but had been really capital efficient to get to that point. Um, Again, focused really pretty widely across the software and You know, technology enabled service ecosystem. Uh, I was there for seven and a half years. You know, when I joined, I thought it was just a two or three year program, but I just, I loved doing what I was doing. Um, So when I thought about, you know, business school or not, or joining a company, but I just knew that if I could just meet more companies, get to know more businesses, make more investments, um, that my, hopefully my pattern recognition and path to building a case to conviction could. I could get there more quickly. I wasn't planning to leave although I I did view the total addressable market of, you know, high growth bootstrapped companies as one that was perhaps declining just given the prevalence of early stage capital and Quite frankly, the prevalence of data, it's really hard for companies these days to hide in plain sight when they're doing exceptionally well. You know, the Atlassians and the Qualtrics and the out systems of the world just get a lot of attention much earlier in, the, in their life cycle. So You know, I was really excited about perhaps joining a broader platform as I viewed the investing landscape to be entering a phase that was going to be highly dynamic. So I had known of General Catalyst for a long time. I grew up in Boston and spent most of my career in Boston. I'm now on the West Coast, so I'd always... Thought incredibly highly of the team and of the strategy and the portfolio of companies that they had built over time. And, you know, one of the founders one day convinced me to come to the office to talk about a co investment opportunity. So I was really excited. I knew they were investing in a company I was really interested in at the time. Uh, But before I know it, he's whiteboarding the strategy of GC. You know, there was no discussion of any co-investment opportunity, but wanted to share where GC was going, you know, their ambition to really grow as a platform and wanted my perspective on that. And then toward the end of the conversation and after a couple of subsequent co- conversations, it was clear that he also was interested in my joining to help build that next phase of of the platform. So, you know, I had known a handful of partners at GC and really took my time to get to know everybody. And you know, with each incremental conversation I had, was just really enamored with the idea of joining this platform that was felt like it was just getting started and had a ton of of momentum and ambition to be the leading full stack venture capital firm so that's what brought me to GC now a little bit over four years ago
0: that's awesome and thank you for sharing that background I really like the whiteboarding as a recruiting tactic strategy <laughs> um, it was I'm
1: really yeah I know I wish I had a, I actually wish I had a picture of that first. First whiteboard session, I should have I should have had more foresight to do that. But just a mental picture for now.
0: Yeah, picture and frame it. Yeah. yeah. So it sounds like you kind of came into GC primarily on the software side. So were there things that you felt you saw in the health tech industry or healthcare more broadly because of that background?
1: There, There definitely were things that I saw in healthcare, albeit for many years, it was mostly... <laughs> All I saw were really long sales cycles, and you know, sort of a, a lack of urgency in in digitization. And so, for a long time, it was actually you know, I was I was less excited about investing in in healthcare. But then it was just really clear, you know, the more time I I got to know, you know, the different companies in the space and how business models were transforming and how data was being used and experiences were improving and you know, quite frankly, just seeing an ecosystem of talent being interested in healthcare and really affecting change. It was clear that, you know, we were perhaps at the beginning of a period of significant transformation and I knew I wanted to be a part of that. And so I'd say my my learnings as a software investor at first created a ton of red flags and then actually led me to just wanting to, to do more and, you know, as I'm sure you can appreciate. I just think there's this incredible pull that the healthcare industry has on someone that once you once you do a little bit, you just, you want to do more.
0: Yeah, definitely. I, I feel like healthcare is very addictive in that sense. You know, you once yeah. you get used to some of the complexity, it's fun. There's a lot of, to your point, red tape. So <laughs> people are usually pretty wary, but, uh, you know, I'm very glad that you made the switch or, you know, you yeah. came onto our side.
1: Yeah, and that's why we have a tremendously collaborative approach to how we invest in healthcare. And, you know, we can, we can get into that later, but the surface area is so massive. It's just, it's too much to do alone. And so as we think about constructing our, our portfolio around our health assurance thesis here at GC, we, we really want companies to collaborate um, with each other with the existing ecosystem, because that's the way we think we're only going to, we're going to be able to affect long-term Systemic change.
0: Yeah. We'll you know circle back on thesis and how you think about healthcare at GC. Typically we ask the career questions towards the end of the interview, but um, just as you're talking about your career, one thing that a lot of you know my peers who are interested in VC are constantly grappling with is oh, is it better to maybe have some experience as an operator first or go right into investing if I can? Mm-hmm. You came from an investing side, are clearly very successful. So Curious to hear your, your advice on that front.
1: Yeah, I mean it's it's such a good question, and the reality is is that there is no right answer. It is such a, a bespoke journey for each individual as to what they want to they do, where they think they need to build from a skill set perspective. But overall, I think my advice is for anyone who knows that they want to be an investor long term, the sooner you can start investing, the better. You know, if it's somebody who's just, you know, not quite sure yet if they want to do investing, you know, perhaps you just need to get the operating experience like off your chest so you know whether or not that's something that you should be doing. And of course, along the way, you're going to get really valuable experience that will help you on the investing side. But I would say if you know that today that you want to be an investor, I would encourage folks to get in the door and start investing as quickly as possible.
0: It definitely sounds like Alex said. You see, it's not you know a requirement to be an operator beforehand. I know sometimes yeah. there's a little pressure there, but
1: <laughs> it's not. But the the reality is, so I you know I've never been an operator. I've you know had opportunities to perhaps pursue that. But what I do is I surround myself with operators. So I have a career long investing perspective, which I think is valuable. A scaled operating perspective is also tremendously valuable, and so. Part of our strategy at GC is we have this executive in residence program where we have recently successfully scaled and exited CEOs and founders who are with us full time that look at investment opportunities with us refine theses with us, work with companies with us post-investment. And I think that enables me to be a better investor. Within healthcare, we have Dr. Ron Paulus, who ran Mission Health Uh, most recently, uh, which was acquired by HCA. We have Jenny Schneider, who was the president and chief medical officer at Lavongo. We have Marco Giorgiatas, who most recently ran Ancestry.com. So as we think about personalized medicine and diagnostics, that's incredibly valuable. And we have Robin Washington, who was most recently the CFO of, of Gilead, as we get more into the life sciences side of the house. So there are ways that you can integrate operating experience into your overall framework.
0: Yeah, makes a ton of sense. So let's dive right into general then: and the philosophy, the theses. And I think what would be helpful just to kind of begin this part of the conversation is if you could give a quick overview of General Catalyst and its strategy as it pertains to healthcare specifically.
1: Yeah, sure. So, um, GC, we are a full stack investment firm, a venture capital firm. You know, we truly are mission driven to invest in powerful, positive change that endures. So, that is sort of the core thesis of, of everything that we do. Um, we have a tremendous amount of flexibility in terms of how we invest in companies. We will do everything from starting businesses out of our office, writing a $500,000 seed check, all the way through to investing hundreds of millions at the growth stage and pre-IPO and, and buying NPO. We really have the vision of backing founders and business models that are having these enduring qualities to them so that we can compound our investment in these businesses over many, many years and be you know truly long-term partners to them. The stage in which we invest is highly varied. The amount of capital in which we invest is highly varied. It's all about finding that right opportunity at the right time where we think we can be incredibly helpful for the next phase of, of growth of the business. We have a global perspective. While we, we were founded in Boston over over 21 years ago. Um, but we now have offices and although it's like offices, I think that used to be relevant, less relevant. Yeah, we have Zoom rooms. Yeah, we have Zoom. <laughs> we have Zoom rooms in uh, Boston, New York, San Francisco, and Palo Alto, and we now have a team on the ground in London. And yeah, so that's that's a little bit on, on GC. Holistically, we divide our time into sector groups, so we have focused teams within enterprise, consumer, healthcare, and fintech, um, and that's where all of our deep thinking and and deep work happens. Where you know we we form really specific theses, invest against those theses, and then make recommendations to the broader partnership as to where we should be uh, deploying capital.
0: And I used to kind of touch on some of those theses in healthcare specifically. I know earlier you brought up the idea of health assurance.
1: Health assurance, yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah. And we had an interview with Kamir um, not too long ago.
1: <laughs> yeah. And we talked
0: a little bit about that as well. So just kind of curious if I could get your take as well on health assurance and how that's yeah. been shaping how you think about investments in the space.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So the way we think about health assurance, and it's, it's such a key focus for us. It's really, how do we move from a system that has historically been one of sick care? So treating people when they're in these high acuity moments, really high cost. So how do we move to a health assurance system that is really designed to help people stay well, bend the cost curve, and make quality care more affordable and accessible for everyone? So that is sort of the overarching thesis of how we invest you know, getting a little bit more granular and how we think about constructing our portfolio. As I mentioned, we are very focused on collaboration. And so how do we build a portfolio of companies that can leverage each other's technologies, that can go to market together, that can perhaps contract together, use use kind of contracting power to their benefit and really engage with the existing systems in in a collaborative way to hopefully drive change faster. you know, as, as I mentioned before, the surface area is so massive. It's just, there's too much to do individually. And so we are very focused on you know, building an ecosystem of companies that can at least in some ways work together to get there faster. And so that informs a lot of the investing that we do as we think about the, our portfolio and how the pieces come together. We've also gone as far as developing you know, enterprise level agreements with some health systems publicly announced earlier this year, our first with TJU, where we are effectively their innovation arm. So we work with a series of companies internally that fit the strategic priorities of digital transformation for the health system and kind of contract together as a group. So we really are hoping to deliver significant value for our portfolio on the the go-to-market side by developing some of these innovation contracts on on behalf of systems. And so for this first agreement, the slate of companies that are a part of it are Transparent, Olive, Tendo, Feles, and Kumir. So as we think about sort of the software stack that aligns with the strategic initiatives of, you know, TJU in particular. So this is the first of what we hope are many of these innovation agreements that speak to our health assurance value proposition.
0: There was definitely quite a bit to unpack there. And One thing I want to kind of circle back on is this idea of contracting power. It's pretty unique. I haven't really heard this coming from the venture capital side as much. So, you know, when let's say a new company joins your portfolio, how are you trying to facilitate these types of joined contracting power? Are they... Really worked into this health insurance network and then just trying to figure out like logistically and from a operational standpoint, how being part of the GC portfolio and part of this thesis translates to that go-to-market impact you mentioned.
1: I'd say there are multiple different ways in which it manifests when a company joins our portfolio. Overall... We we have an amazing woman, Chetra, Ch- on our team who just recently joined. She's a full-time employee who's focused on building our health assurance ecosystem, meaning working on developing these enterprise-level agreements with health systems. And we've started with health systems, but we'll certainly start to work in a more integrated way with payers. And so we first understand, okay, what are these strategic priorities? And then how do we map our existing portfolio to what these strategic priorities are? And so when a company joins our portfolio, you know, we may be work already working on enterprise-level agreement where their proposition fit squarely into what one of these strategic priorities might be, and we can put them into the stack of companies that we sort of present to the health system. So that's one way in which there can be potentially immediate leverage as being a part of the GC portfolio. Otherwise, as a company joins the portfolio and we understand, you know, what their business model is, what their technology needs may be, you know, we match basically connect that company with the other companies in our ecosystem that makes sense for them specifically. Say it's a business that could benefit from CMUR's open platform to you know be faster in developing and getting to market, you know, will make that connection. Or that someone that's looking to integrate behavioral health into their overall ecosystem, you know, connecting them with Sondermine, for example, to figure out if there's a way to work together. So kind of bespoke to the company in terms of you know what their needs are for this next phase of growth and what the different ways we can provide velocity from our portfolio connections. We figure that out even before we invest and, you know, line up those relationships um, within our portfolio right away and then make sure it's really well understood, like what the pipeline of these enterprise level health system agreements are that we're working on.
0: And I I think it's very cool how it sounds like General Callas itself is pursuing and creating these enterprise level agreements. Um, And then creating this as a value proposition to potential investments and obviously helping existing portfolio companies quite a bit. That seems to be pretty unique from what I've seen, at least.
1: Yeah, we, we like to think it's a pretty innovative strategy for a venture firm to go this far, but it's been a part of our thesis for a really long time to be collaborative with the existing systems rather than you know just assuming all these companies are going to be top-down disruptive.
0: And kind of curious, during the diligence process, how much of those conversations are maybe focused on trying to see if there's that initial fit between, say, a commure and, you know, I know Ripon was a recent investment, say Ripon Health. So are you facilitating conversations between these companies before investing or what does that look like?
1: Yeah, so oftentimes we are facilitating these conversations before we invest, if we have the time and luxury to do so. You know, Ribbon's a great example of a company that was already working with a couple of our portfolio companies. You know, like Rowe and and Olive yeah. and others. But Olive, for example, they have a new insurance company called Circulo. So we were able to kind of foster a, kind of re- a reconnection there because we knew that Olive was interested in using um, Ribbon downstream for Circulo, and that was. Um, conversation that we had with all of before we invested. So so sometimes we can make these connections before we invest. It just depends on how much time we have. And if not right before we invest, then immediately thereafter. But we oftentimes are able to you know leverage our art portfolio for for the diligence work that we're doing if we think there's really your synergy.
0: Makes sense. And uh, I, I like that you mentioned based on how much time you have because there's actually a perfect segue (laughs) into some of the other things I want to talk about right now. And that's kind of just thinking about what the venture space is going to look like. And really, I guess how it's been changing so far. It seems like the time between rounds has been getting shorter. Things are moving faster these days. Checks are getting bigger. Everything's just kind of changed a bit. I guess let's start there. I mean, what's happened so far today, even if we want to think about 2021. So from that perspective, what are some of the big changes you've seen in the venture strategy, venture approach in digital health? And then, what's this mean for how GC has been adapting towards that? You know, how GC has been thinking about you know doing diligence or you know investing in companies?
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. <laughs> and as you said, you know, I think things are moving faster and rounds are going to be. It's like yes, yes, yes. It's all these things are are happening in real time. And I think. You know, just one of the biggest surprises, I think, for me as I reflect back on 2020 and 2021 is is just the overall sheer go-to-market velocity that we've seen within healthcare. It's just really been incredible and probably something I, quite frankly, underestimated at first as you talk to all these companies and understand their plans and what they think You know, their trajectory could be, oftentimes it has exceeded expectations, which is just, it's really, it's really rare to see so many companies at the same time exceeding expectations. And it's just, it's what we've seen and, you know, word gets out about that. Right um, for investors that are seeking growth and cyclically, everybody is is chasing growth right now. So you know, it was really clear that this category, which hadn't always hadn't always been in favor, was going to be highly sought after. Which is why we made a really pointed effort to get our thesis down on paper and out there. And I give a ton of credit to my my partner Haman, for you know the book that he wrote in 2019 called on healthcare. And so, you know, we had been starting to build some really interesting momentum in in the category and it just so happened to be timed perfectly as to what was a really significant inflection point of interesting opportunities to invest in. Yeah, so I think the, the steps that we've taken, and so we put our thesis on paper, but kind of before this flurry, which was in hindsight, a great decision. And since then, since the, the market has becoming a lot more competitive, you know, we, we really have tried to think really clearly about our portfolio construction and what are our sub themes that we care about? Where do we have gaps within our portfolio as we think about this health assurance thesis and, and just try to be as proactive as we can? in getting to know companies as early as possible and where we have conviction, uh, you know, trying to stay ahead of, of these broad processes. It's not always possible, but having that tight path to conviction is, is really, really critical. And it's why we as a firm started to organize into these discrete sector groups so that we can empower these sector groups in a world where everything is moving more quickly to make the informed decisions on behalf of of the firm you know and so so that helps with the initial investment and then there's the dynamic of once you invest and things continue to go well the timing for the next round has been coming a lot faster than anyone had thought and so that it really does have implications as you think about your portfolio construction and uh, allocations for follow-on rounds, and how you have the intellectually honest conversation of how you participate in in a round where you know the valuation is significantly marked up in a really short period of time. You know it's why we always try to take this really long-term, enduring view of a company and and invest along that rather than these kind of short increments where things may or may not make sense
0: curious. So from a VC as an industry standpoint, I'm wondering if you expect to see any major structural change in terms of how certain phases are done to keep up with pace more broadly. And uh, the reason I'm asking this is something that comes to mind is there's a piece in the generalist maybe about Tiger's approach. And Mm -hmm. one thing they mentioned is that, you know, they're outsourcing diligence, for instance, to Bain to move quickly on that front or Maybe they're outsourcing some elements of their sourcing. It doesn't seem like that's been a model that anyone else is doing. And it makes sense why if people aren't doing it that way, um, you know, to stay close to the company. But do you see like parts of the industry feeling pressure to maybe move more quickly in some of these phases or bring on that additional help to move more quickly?
1: I think 2021 was the ultimate year of introspection for venture capital firms. There's just, it, I think back, going back to March 2020, just a lot has a lot has happened, you know. And I think even in those early days, where people were like, "Oh my God, the world, the world is ending. Should we all just go pencil it down, stop investing?" So, thinking from back then to where we are today, there's just been significant change. And so, I think you know, every firm needs to kind of pause and reflect on strategy and understand what their superpower is and how they stick to their what has made them successful. To this point, And how does that continue to project going forward? So, you know, I, I think there are probably a lot of firms that have brought on resource or tried to figure out how we can move, move more quickly. But I think they are also, you can make the argument of just being comfortable with missing things. Like you're just, as an investor, you're never going to see absolutely everything and you're never going to invest in, in absolutely everything. And so in a world where growth has been so substantial, and therefore there are a lot of quote attractive opportunities. You have to be comfortable in, in in sticking to what your long-term thesis is and investing against that rather than kind of just chasing, chasing the next deal, which is tempting always, to be clear. So I think there's been a little bit of everything happening among firms of figuring out how do we move faster, but stick to our pool and you know, not abandon what has made us successful to get to this point.
0: Yeah, for sure. And it is interesting to hear that perspective. And I appreciate you sharing that. Because even from the non-investor perspective, us in healthcare, for a lot of my peers in school, we're just constantly seeing, like every week, like, oh, so-and-so raised the series, whatever. <laughs> and like it doesn't end. I know. And so is like a mom, every day. Yeah. Yeah. Well, quality, not quantity, I guess. Exactly. Um, so one thing I want to do in this last part of the conversation is the fun part, which is just speculating and let's speculate on 2022. 2022. Yeah, let's do it. And, you know, 2021 to your point earlier, it's, I think if we just kind of look at some of the companies that haven't really achieved some growth, especially I'll say like health infrastructure, behavioral health, there's kind of these different themes that have really shown to be successful in the industry. So I'm curious, what are some of your predictions for areas of growth or, uh, maybe even big structural changes, if any, that you see in healthcare in the coming year. And we can kind of go from there.
1: Yeah, you've, you've called out a, a number of things that we saw in in, in 2021. And you know, as I think about 2022, I mean, there are a number of, of themes that I'm excited about. You know, One is, I know you mentioned you know behavioral health which, you know, 2021 really was a banner year for investing in mental health-focused companies. have market leaders in our portfolio like Sondermine that grew really dramatically as they're focused on democratizing access to care and enabling the providers to scale their practices to serve all demographic populations. So I think, you know, while there's still incredible innovation to come in these therapist-led models to drive better and more cost effective outcomes over the long term. I do think that 2022 will present a strong focus on the integration of the mental and the physical. You know, in recent quarters and years, I've been focused on building these really interesting personalized care experiences for for physical conditions and then figuring out okay, how do we also scale behavioral health so that those that need it can get access to it? And the reality is that these things have to come together that challenges with mental health can be a comorbidity to almost any physical health condition. And companies really need to figure out how to address that comorbidity in an integrated way at scale. This will really allow for early intervention, better holistic health, and hopefully more aggressively drive down the total lifetime cost of care by addressing these needs in parallel. And so I think... It's technology infrastructure, and it's a collaborative care model that really need to exist to support this. So that's that's a trend that I'm I'm really excited about.
0: And I guess uh, just quickly on that trend, I'm curious. So how much of that integration do you think you started alluding to this might be more product or tech driven versus, say, packaging, right? So maybe if you're going to employers, a mental health company might you know work with a chronic care company and you know co go to market together?
1: Yeah, it's both. On the technology side, there needs to be a way to have like really seamless collaboration on that patient journey and be able to document the data and outcomes. So I think there's still absolutely sort of a a next generation technology layer that really needs to be built for these things to truly be successful and have, have longevity to them rather than just... Getting to market quickly and packaging it as a bundle. I think there, there are plenty of hacks that exist that can enable that. But I think to, to have enduring change, there, there needs to be, be a technology architecture that's that's also in mind for this collaborative care model. Another trend is, I mean, obviously there's been a huge focus on the shift toward value-based care. That's not, that's not new. And you know, I think today it's more than a third of reimbursement contracts are value-based. You know, while these arrangements exist, there's still a big execution gap in actually delivering care to be successful in these value-based frameworks and therefore capture the economics associated with the arrangement. So I think 2022 will be a year where we really start to see an ecosystem of platforms and services emerge that enable organizations to effectively shift to this value-based model. And I think, you know, you can categorize them in, in groups. There's patient-focused tooling. There's provider workflow focused tooling and you know, operations-focused tooling, like actuarial technologies and services that need to be deployed at scale to allow the providers the time that they need to optimize that personalized care with the patients that should be seeing them and have been able to find them. And so you know there are a lot of companies that have started to merge in that ecosystem, even as I think about Ribbon at the really basic level of making sure people are getting to see the right provider, really high quality provider. So they're set up for success in that journey of one that will help that system in a value-based care model is really important.
0: And if you had a third prediction for 2022, is there one that comes to mind or I mean, we can keep it at the top? Oh
1: yeah, well. no, I could <laughs> I could keep going. Um, <laughs>
0: well, three um, is good. I feel like three is just worth
1: Yeah, <laughs> no, three is a, three's a good number. Um, I, I mean, another theme that we're really focused on is rural health. Like how do we more effectively address? of the population that live in rural areas where access to care is terrible. You know, there are fewer providers, outcomes are worse. We're at the point where we should be able to create tech-enabled leverage for care delivery and a proven value-based service model that can be successful to reach this population. You know, there's obviously been significant evolution in the virtual care models and what can support the documentation of improvements in clinical outcomes and soft cost savings where the rural disparities don't have to be so dramatic. You know, historically, the issue has always been density of population. And so how do you actually get people to serve this population in a way that's cost-effective. And I think there are, there are definitely ways that you can solve for this by integrating primary and really specific high-quality specialty virtual care networks, regardless of you know, the payer segment that the population may be in. You know, We've seen companies being successful in focusing on Medicare and Medicaid populations. This is companies like Block and Oak Street, et cetera. We feel like we're gonna start to see a lot of in- innovation um, that's finally focused on the r- rural population as well.
0: And just double click on the rural population for a second. Obviously, it's a huge underserved need in this country. And one thing I'd be curious to get your take on is, hard to speculate what the right solution is. There's probably multiple types of solutions. But you know, when you think about ways to address this problem, there's at least in my mind an approach of we need to have maybe more brick and mortar. In these areas, and you know, creates these sites of care, and then there's one that's maybe a little bit more scaled via tech and you know, virtual solutions. Yeah. How are you thinking about maybe those different approaches when it comes to rural care?
1: Yeah, I mean, what I think is it's going to be a combination of tech-enabled personalized experiences, remote monitoring, remote patient monitoring. So we're starting to see some platforms that can really function and even. Areas that have poor bandwidth, et cetera, and these high-performance virtual specialty networks. I think really figuring out the specialty network is, is what is going to unlock better long-term care for you know. So you think about the rural populations and some of the kind of disease categories that more greatly affect this demographic. The need that mix of you know technologies and services is going to be required got it makes sense and especially as we think about the specialty virtual networks i mean the reality is is that in some like even if we, as we take behavioral health just as one category and how do you serve you know rural populations where there may not be a therapist within miles and miles and there's also a potential stigma from walking into a clinic you know if you're in a rural environment where you literally know everybody and someone sees you pull up into a, into a clinic for, you know, mental health related services, people may not engage. And so having, you know, whether it's embedded into the local primary care clinic or, you know, figuring out a way to have uh, a virtual presence in a non-stigmatized location is going to be really important.
0: Yeah, definitely. So in the last couple of minutes, one thing I do want to wrap up with is advice One thing I think a lot of people are always interested in, especially from VC side of things, is advice to entrepreneurs. I think you hit a lot of um, you know really interesting trends and themes for people to be looking out for from a maybe team perspective almost. Is there any piece of advice you would give to entrepreneurs who are building their companies in 2022 and you know organizing people together to maybe solve some of these problems that uh, you alluded to earlier?
1: It's a good question. I mean, you know, just really deeply understanding what specific problem are you trying to solve and what stakeholders are already bought in that that problem needs to be solved and should be solved over the next 5 to 10 years. I'm not saying it's like yes or no is the right... Um, is like, should you pursue this or not? But it it more greatly informs the team that you need to build and kind of the superpowers that you have to have as a collective unit early on to get that early market traction and signaling um, that will allow you to to scale and you know further bolster the members of the team you can you can bring on and you know buy into that vision. So I would say just taking a little bit of extra time to reflect on that and really making sure that the early team has the right characteristics. To go after that, and just being really self-aware as the founder as to where there may be gaps, and filling those sooner than later. But there, I mean, it's a, a really exciting time to build a company. That is for sure.
0: Yeah, definitely. And yeah, you know, to your point, making sure everyone's aligned on that mission makes yeah. it even more exciting if you're on you know the company side. You know, another. I mean, a question on the theme of advice is: Give any advice for you know aspiring investors? I think we started this conversation talking a lot about your career journey and um, mm-hmm. how you kind of made that decision. Curiously, if you have any advice for people who are interested in the investment space, particularly, um, we've had some questions from some of our uh, female peers. If you have any advice to women who are interested in you know breaking into investing,
1: as you think about where to go and where to kind of plant your flag and build your early career, find people that you're just feel like you have like multiple acts of learning to enjoy with that with that individual. This is absolutely an apprentice-based model. And so having a a really well-defined team of, you know, a handful of mentors um, where you can just bounce ideas off as you as you get going is is really important in this business because all of a sudden you can be in this spot where you're like you're sort of a solo practitioner and there are a million different directions and where you could take your investing thesis and so having that kind of core community of mentors is 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 really important when you're when you're just getting started um and and really just making sure that the firm that you join you have a very well-defined champion who is going to support you and is invested in your development and success
0: i love that um definitely like making sure you have you know people who are, who care about you and you drive with. Last question of this Friday afternoon, uh, and then we can all enjoy the weekend. Uh, And that is, are you hiring? Is General Cas hiring MBAs? And if so, what types of skills and backgrounds are you looking
1: for? We're always hiring exceptional people. We're never, you know, like any uh, growth company, we're never, we're never not, not hiring. And you know, we don't have prerequisites either way um, in terms of, you know, do we require MBA? Do we not? And so we're we really just looking for people that deeply align with our, you know, our mission and our core values and that we think can add texture to our investing practices and see opportunities that we don't see. And that, again, just really have a truly collaborative approach to investing because that's absolutely our style at GC. We say we're we're more of a, a soccer team than a tennis team and so yeah just looking for hugely ambitious individuals to to join us yeah
0: and I, I personally like soccer more than tennis so there's
1: a <laughs> <boss there. laughs> likewise I was a soccer player
0: oh nice so that's another story we probably should have started the podcast with <laughs>
1: exactly
0: <laughs> thank you again so much for making the time today uh, I thought it was a great conversation I really learned a lot so thank you again for joining us on the pulse
1: yeah thank you for having me really appreciate it